everyone. My name is Mina Ramchandani. I'm an infectious disease physician at the University of Washington in Seattle. This podcast is dedicated to an STD review for healthcare professionals who are interested in remaining up to date on the diagnosis, management, and prevention of STDs. This is the seventh episode of our Monkeypox podcast series, which focuses on the 2022 outbreak. In this episode, we will discuss the virology of monkeypox virus infection. The sixth and seventh episodes are from an interview with Dr. Bahuma Tatanji, recorded in November of 2022. In the last episode, Dr. Tatanji and I discussed inequities and international aspects of monkeypox virus infection. Dr. Tatanji is an assistant professor of medicine in the Division of Infectious Diseases at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia. So we've heard a little bit about HMPX epidemiology, transmission, and clinical presentation in some of our recent previous episodes. Can you tell us a little bit more about the virus origin in the 2022 outbreak, and how does this compare to previous outbreaks, both in the U.S. as well as in other countries? Right. Uh, The outbreak in in 2022 is actually caused by clade 2 of the virus, which is the clade of the virus that primarily circulates in West Africa. And it's also the clade of the virus that caused uh, the biggest outbreak in Nigeria, which happened between 2017 and 2018. And the initial signal that kind of led to the ongoing outbreaks being identified was that there were noticing individuals in the United Kingdom presenting with monkeypox and getting diagnosed with it without any history of having traveled to a country that is endemic for monkeypox. And as the cases kept coming in, they noticed that these cases were primarily clustering in gay, bisexual, and MSM, and in individuals who were connected through their social networks. And the same patterns kind of emerged around Europe, kind of tracking very closely with large pride events that happened in Spain, in the Netherlands, and in Belgium. And that really led to the epidemiological signal alerting the world that there was um, this outbreak. When you look at the the sequences um, of monkeypox that have been isolated or the initial sequences that were isolated in the outbreaks that were happening across Europe, there's actually a study that was um, published very early on by um, researchers in Portugal that showed that the sequences isolated from monkeypox uh, patients in Portugal clustered quite closely with the sequences of the virus that had been isolated during the Nigeria outbreak in 2017 and 2018. So there is a certain degree or certain group of thought that thinks that monkeypox transmission probably was happening Mm -hmm. at a low level um, and had gone unnoticed for some time before an amplification event, likely around pride events across Europe that led to a much bigger signal and it being recognized as an outbreak. So what we are seeing right now may actually be an extension or continuation Mm. of an outbreak that started in Nigeria in 2017, 2018. And another aspect or another piece of the puzzle in terms of the virology of the virus that's circulating now is 
Normally, orthopox viruses tend to evolve very slowly. They're not like the virus that causes COVID-19. They're not RNA viruses. They're a lot better at editing their DNA when they replicate. So they don't make a lot of errors in the replication. And so they introduce errors in, in their replication about one or two single nucleotide polymorphisms per year. However, when you compare the sequences that were obtained during the Nigeria outbreak and the sequences that were obtained during the outbreaks ongoing currently, over the course of five years, the virus has accumulated about 50 mm. single nucleotide polymorphisms, which is a lot more than one would expect over that time period for an orthopox virus, suggesting that it is evolving a lot quicker. And when you look at the signature of these changes, they suggest that those changes have occurred under the pressure of a DNA editing enzyme known as APOBEC, which is a human DNA editing enzyme, suggesting that transmission has been occurring in humans since 2017 to a certain degree that has led to the changes in, in the genome and uh, those uh, single nucleotide polymorphisms accumulating a lot at a higher rate than one would expect. So these are some of the clues that are making phylogeneticists and evolutionary virologists think that, you know, what we're seeing now is actually a continuation of an outbreak that started in 2017. Now, in terms of these differences, we don't know what these changes mean because the question I get often is, are these mutations then making the virus more virulent or is does it account for uh, the virus transmitting in the ways in which we are seeing now? We know that there are changes in the genetic um, constitution of the virus in the nucleotide sequence, but we don't know what these mutations mean. And we know that they have occurred under the pressure of APOBEC, which is a human DNA editing enzyme. So we, we don't have any evidence that this might be due to the biological features of the virus that have changed since previous years, but there are mutations that do show that the strain has changed or evolved. Yes, absolutely. And I think that that is an area that a lot of people, a lot of groups uh, are looking at. It's now going and looking at those gene mutations and trying to understand what they actually mean in terms of the phenotype that they confer. You know, does it mean that it makes it more easy for the virus to transmit through a mucosal route or some of the new modes of transmission that we're seeing now? These are areas of active inquiry that we need to get a better sense of. Now, this is a less virulent clade, correct, of the virus that is yes, causing absolutely. the 2022 outbreak? Mm -hmm. The clade, clade two of the virus is a lot less virulent than clade one. Clade one tends to cause an infection that is more similar in phenotype and can even be almost indistinguishable in clinical manifestations to smallpox. Mm -hmm. And clade one tends to cause a much milder syndrome. And when you look at historical cohorts reported from the DRC and, and other African countries, the estimated mortality rate for clade one, which is the more virulent virus, is about 10%, whereas for clade two, it hovers around 1%. And in the current outbreaks, it's about 0.03% wow. um, mortality. So, so actually quite a difference in, in virulence between the two clades of, of the virus. 
Thank you. And do we have any evidence about what could account for the differences in virulence between the different strains? It has been hypothesized that there might actually be um, specific um, virulence-associated genetic uh, differences between the two different clades of the virus. Actually, clade one and clade two are 99.4% similar to each other. And so quite closely similar viruses, but there are some differences in their genome. And it is hypothesized that some of these differences may actually be reflected or may actually correspond to specific virulence factors that account for the clinical manifestations being so different for clade two compared to clade one. But again, monkeypox is one of those viruses that had been pretty significantly understudied compared to, say, other arthropox viruses like smallpox or vaccinia virus. So this is, again, another area of active uh, inquiry, and we need to gain more understanding on why the virulence is so different between the two clades, but also why clade two is behaving the way it's behaving in the ongoing outbreaks. And so in the ongoing outbreak with clade two, we have some patients who are presenting with, let's say, a single genital ulcer. Mm -hmm. And then there's some patients, more rarely, who have severe clinical presentations. They might get sepsis, encephalitis, or can affect the lung or the heart. Um, Does this maybe have to do with the virus, the viral strain, the host, or possibly both? Can you tell us a little bit more about if we have any evidence for this? I think that it's it's likely a combination of both. I think I would start with the host factors. We know now from a growing amount of clinical evidence that there is quite a strong association uh, between people who have a diagnosis of human monkeypox and an association with having an existing diagnosis of HIV. And that people with HIV not on antiretroviral therapy and who have low CD4 counts and basically are in clinical AIDS have more severe manifestations of of monkeypox. We also know that the B cell response, the T cell responses are very, very important for clearing orthopox viruses, including monkeypox. So in individuals who are severely immunocompromised, it's not entirely surprising that they're not able to effectively clear the virus and as a result are presenting with more disseminated features of the infection and also presenting with more complications. Actually, of the deaths that have been reported Globally, in the current outbreak, I think at last count, there had been 38 deaths recorded. A lot of these deaths have happened in individuals with underlying immunocompromise, be it as a result of having HIV and not being treated for their HIV, or other individuals who are on chemotherapy or have another reason for having an immunocompromised immune system. Now, coming back, the viral factors that may also be explaining, I think that it's also pretty clear that inoculum Mm -hmm. matters enough. So a lot, how much virus is introduced and where it's it's introduced introduced, and how it's introduced. Exactly. (laughs) There is a very compelling uh, case series that was published out of Spain, I think in in the Lancet, that did show quite a very strong correlation, individuals who presented with oral and pharyngeal 
lesions where individuals were also admitting to having oral sex as their primary mode of exposure. And those who presented with penile and anal lesions were those who reported having insertive anal sex or receptive anal sex. So really tracking with the point of inoculation. And there have now also been case reports of health workers who have been exposed to monkeypox through needle stick injury, developing lesions locally at the point of injury. And that really, again, tells you that the clinical manifestations track quite closely with where the virus is introduced, but also track quite closely with how much virus is is introduced, you know. So we're seeing a bit of a reflection of that. In terms of whether we've actually seen a change in virulence that may be pointing in the direction of the virus itself is more virulent. We don't really have a strong indicator for that because if anything, the mortality rates in the ongoing outbreaks have been much, much lower than what has been reported previously in Western Central Africa when these outbreaks have happened in these settings. But I would add the caveat that there is a bit of a confounding factor here. Like what people don't realize is the mortality for the clade one virus that we're seeing right now, which is so incredibly low in the US at 0.03% or whatever that is, could really still be 1% in Cameroon or Nigeria, because again, oftentimes these outbreaks are happening in very remote parts of these countries where there isn't enough access to medical care and patients may be succumbing to bacterial sepsis just from having bacterial superinfection of skin lesions or just the lack of basic medical attention that would treat complications for which they would not die if they were in a city or in the in a western hospital where you had access to a lot of treatments, et cetera. So that may be playing a role in some of the differences that we are seeing. And I don't think that this is strong, compelling evidence that makes me think that there are new mutations in the virus that has made it meaner. That's not to say that it could not change because viruses evolve. That's what viruses do. And one cannot predict if in 10 years, if monkeypox keeps circulating in the human population, Will we see a difference in virulence? I I, I cannot read the, the tea leaves on, on any virus, I'm afraid. It is the nature of viruses to continue to survive within its host environments. And yeah. so I guess it's our job to try to prevent that from happening as much as we can. I do <laughs> want to ask you this one question. When we're thinking about virology, What's the most common question you get about HMPX virology and how do you usually answer this question? I probably split it in two. The most common question I get from patients and the most common question I get from my colleagues. <laughs> so well from my patients, I, I get the question of, is this going to persist and, and be like HIV? Because unfortunately, you know, there's that strong association between having a diagnosis of HIV and presenting with monkeypox. And about 60% of our patients in Atlanta have been people with HIV. So a lot of the people I've treated with human monkeypox have had that fear that mm. they had acquired another virus that would be with them forever and they would 
they, you know, they're already living with HIV. So this kind of brings back flashbacks of their initial diagnosis with HIV and being told that it's a virus that we could not cure and we still can't cure, although we can control. Mm -hmm. So to that group of individuals and for that question, I think I'm I'm usually very quick in, in providing reassurance that Fortunately, for a lot of people, uh, monkeypox is a self-limiting infection and a lot of people recover fully. Um, the recovery process can take two to four weeks. But for most patients in, in 99% of cases, a lot of people would make um, a full recovery. And for individuals who have not come in contact with human monkeypox, I encourage them to get vaccinated because mm-hmm. that would protect them from at least reduce their their risk of getting an infection or lead to milder symptoms if they they indeed come in contact with monkeypox. And for those who are not taking their ARTs, I encourage them to take their ARTs because, again, an intact immune system is one of those things that you want to shore up to make sure that if you do come in contact with human monkeypox, it is indeed a self-limiting infection for you. Going to the other side and thinking about the questions that I most frequently get from my colleagues is, and I've gotten that twice this week, it's how long can I give someone take a Vera mat? Oh, yes. <laughs> that does come up. Yes, can I give it again? Up. A longer course or another yes. course? And, and, I, and I think that the reason why that's coming up is as the case numbers have gone down, the cases that a lot of clinicians are dealing with right now are the more challenging cases of human monkeypox that's happening in individuals, unfortunately, with significant immunocompromise. And in these individuals, they tend, without an immune system, without T cells, without the ability to make antibodies, you're not going to clear the virus. So a lot of clinicians are experiencing putting people on 14-day course of ticoviramat, stopping that and promptly seeing the patient, quote-unquote, relapse with new uh, lesions popping up, et cetera. And they're kind of struggling with how to, to navigate that. So the way in which I usually respond to that question is, first of all, the 14-day treatment course is entirely based on animal models for monkeypox. And it's also extrapolated from from data on the disease course of smallpox. Mm -hmm. So it's really, again, showing you the fact that a lot of what we know about monkeypox is extrapolated from other orthopox viruses. And sometimes when we extrapolate things like duration of treatment would be sufficient for vaccinia or for smallpox, but maybe for monkeypox, it needs a longer treatment course. So I encourage people not to have a very fixed mindset about, oh, it says on the package insert 14 days, because it's not based on a clinical trial done in humans that actually determined that that was the sufficient duration of treatment. That's the first consideration. The second consideration is in individuals who have AIDS and don't have an immune system, when you stop the antiviral that's controlling the monkeypox infection, you will promptly see viral replication resume because they cannot clear the virus with without an immune system. So I think the the the, the field is moving towards considering extending 
antivirals uh, for these patients until their immune systems recover while they're on antiretroviral therapy in order to give them the ability to have the immune system that allows them to also clear the virus by themselves. And a lot of these decisions can be done or can be made in consultation with uh, the pox virus branch at the CDC who are incredibly helpful when you call them up to discuss some of these challenging questions. So that is kind of my take, what I, I say to, to my colleagues who ask, how long should I be treating this patient with, with Ticoviramat? I'd love to ask you, what are your thoughts on the potential concern for resistance to Ticoviramat? Yes. It It is concerning, certainly, because when you look at in vitro studies of monkeypox with the drug, kind of some of the initial studies that preclinical studies that were done, it doesn't take a lot in vitro to select for ticoviramate resistance. It has a low barrier mm. uh, to monkeypox resistance in vitro. However, there is reassuring data from the CDC um some of the initial sequences that they have been collecting nationwide from some of these challenging cases from patients who have been on ticoviramat for longer than the 14-day duration, they have not been able to isolate any um, cases in which they detected resistance. And this question was posed at the last ID Week meeting on a panel on monkeypox in which I was participating to the CDC colleague who was presenting on treatment, and they did say that they have not seen any resistance select for for ticoviramat. And I would encourage clinicians who are dealing with these challenging cases and extending uh, the treatment courses of ticoviramat for their patients to reach out to the CDC so that they can send samples, because I think it's important to to monitor sequentially in these individuals if someone's been on ticoviramat for a month, for two months. Maybe we did not detect resistance at one month, but will we detect resistance at month two, et cetera? And of course, you know, the normal monitoring that happens while patients are on medications, particularly in the case of ticoviramat, monitoring for liver function markers and making sure that those are continuing to remain within normal limits is, is an, another important consideration. Thank you so much. This has been so educational for both myself and the audience. And I just want to thank you, Dr. Tatanji, for joining us today. It's been an absolute pleasure to speak with you on these very important topics. So thank you for being here. Yeah, it was my pleasure. And thanks for inviting me. This podcast is brought to you by the National STD Curriculum, the University of Washington STD Prevention Training Center, and is funded by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Transcripts and references for this podcast series can be found on our website, the National STD Curriculum at www.std.uw.edu.